Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Dr. Christopher Witt, Creighton University's inaugural Vice Provost for Institutional Diversity and Inclusion. Dr. Christopher Witt is Creighton University's inaugural Vice Provost for Institutional Diversity and Inclusion. Prior to taking on that role in February 2018, he spent over a decade at Augustana College in Rock Island, Illinois, teaching political science and was a co-founder of the Africana Studies Program and founding director of the Center for Inclusive Leadership and Equity. Dr. Witt has received numerous honors for his work in the classroom and in the community, including being named the National Conference of Black Political Scientists 2013 Teacher of the Year and receiving the Rock Island NAACP's Civil Rights Hero Award in 2017. Dr. Witt earned his MA and PhD in political science at the University of Maryland, College Park. His BA in political science is from Salisbury University in Maryland. Dr. Witt, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, So I should say that we're recording this, uh, our conversation by Zoom. I mentioned that just so that listeners are aware that we're um, recording socially distant from each other. Um, I want to ask you, first of all, given that you have this really bold title and also that you're first in this role, what do inclusion and diversity mean? And how might people unfamiliar with this field um, understand what you mean by those, those definitions? I think I'd like to start off by just saying, you know, in times like this, we might even want to think about the fact that we're physically distant, but we don't really want to be socially distant because in many cases, particularly in the work that I do, I see that even in the best of times, we have members of our communities, be it university communities, broader metropolitan communities that feel marginalized in the best of times. And then if we go into uh, a moment of crisis, then we end up having people, you're asking people who have already felt marginalized to consider being socially distant. And in many cases, they may say, well, I felt socially distant well before uh, the pandemic. Whereas if we talk about physical distancing, maybe, just maybe, we can figure out ways to make people feel seen, to bring people into the fold. Maybe, just maybe, coming out of this, we would have figured out ways to have people feeling like they have been seen and they can be part of, you know, a greater conversation. So that would just be my one of my hopes in these tough times. Now, uh, I guess rolling back to what you uh, asked, I like the fact that you mentioned inclusion before diversity. Even though my title is Vice Provost of Institutional Diversity and Inclusion, a lot of the work that I do goes well beyond the institution, and I like to start with inclusion. Uh, because when you think about diversity, you're really thinking about who's there. You know, what is the makeup of any given room, any given organization? But when you talk about inclusion, that's where you're really looking to shift the culture. When we're thinking about inclusion, we're thinking about do people feel a certain sense of ownership? Do they feel like this is as much their organization or their endeavor as the next person? So that really comes through in the ways in which our leaders lead. It comes through in the structures that we have in place, the ways in which we are intentional about recognizing that people have many intersecting identities that make them who they are. 
that uh, when we're really looking at a room full of people, it's not as simple as whatever might be the measure of diversity at that moment in time. Uh, the reality is if we're being inclusive, that we're really being thoughtful, we're being mindful, we're being proactive about making sure that we're considering all the different things that people bring to the table and the fact that they may lean into some element of their identity more than the other at any given moment and switch it up later because of their circumstance. We each navigate our community, our workplaces, we even navigate our families different than the person next to us. So that's a very long-winded way of really going into the fact that inclusion really is a priority. Inclusion is really something that you lead with, you start with, and you try your very best to weave it through an organization. And it's not easy work. And a lot of times it's work that is very hard to quantify. Uh, it's, it's a lot easier to quantify diversity. Uh, you say, well, we want to look at racial diversity. Who's here? Who do we need to get here? Can we make these numbers change from year to year? But when we're looking at inclusion and really leading with that, it's a little bit harder to measure culture. I mean, there are ways to do climate studies. There are ways to do, you know, off-the-record interviews, on-the-record interviews, has people respond in certain ways. But a lot of times, inclusion really is something that has to be sustained, and it has to be something that you have enough people who are committed to it that they can then be honest to say when it is there and also to say when it isn't there. If you don't have a critical mass of people in leadership positions who can be honest enough to say when there's a need for more work in the inclusion space, you're going to have a tough time really making that leap from doing a great job in inclusion and then really being solid in diversity. You talk about the work and how much work is needed and um, being honest about it, which suggests in some way that there was something broken or something flawed. There is, there is something broken, something flawed. I don't want a single crate now because it, it has stepped up by asking you to take this role and lead on this. But what is the context? What, you know, what is wrong that it needs something like your efforts to lead a way forward? Well, when you look at the work of um, diversity and inclusion in higher education, it really is something that goes across the industry. And you see people doing this work and engaging in this work and naming inaugural senior leaders in diversity and inclusion across industries. So this really, you know, I don't think Creighton would take any offense to you saying, where's that work that's needed to be done? Because this is work and these are decisions that are being made, not only across colleges and universities, but right here in Omaha, with a lot of our major employers, you're seeing, I, I know a lot of the folks who are the inaugural chief diversity officer or the inaugural director of diversity and inclusion. So organizations across the board are starting to recognize that this is something of great importance and that if this is a priority, if this is something of great importance, then you need people who, who are going to lead, who are going to organize, who are going to have certain levels of responsibility, even though a lot of the responsibility at the end of the day has to be collective. But a lot of times I'll talk about um, this work in the same way of other elements of work that we look at in organizations and we don't bat an eye at it if you have somebody leading it, if you have a certain approach. So for any organization, be it a nonprofit, a for-profit, even a municipal organization, there's a certain level of responsibility when it comes to uh, finance. 
So each organization is going to have its way of doing finances and accounting. And they're going to have people who lead that. You're going to have a chief financial officer. You're going to have other folks who are going to assist in that. And nobody says, well, why on earth do we need leaders? Why on earth do we need accountants? Why do we need people? Everybody in here knows math. We'll just figure it out. No, you really do need to have an approach. And the same thing can be said for certain organizations that may have a mission officer, other organizations that may have communications and marketing uh, people where you want to have a coherent brand, a coherent approach. The same thing can be said if diversity and inclusion is going to be a priority, then you need to make sure that you're organizing some sort of leadership structure and that you're trying to have a coherent voice when it comes to it. Now, all of these elements that I talk about, it takes a lot of ongoing work. And particularly when you're starting new, it takes some time to build up. But it really is something that if you're going to prioritize it, you need the people. What was it that Creighton identified? And what was it that they said in your interview process that made you and them think, oh, yes, we, we, we need this role. We're going to hire for this role. And here's how we're going to explain it to Dr. Whip. And in turn, what were you looking for from Creighton? Mm-hmm. So maybe I'm, I'm, I'm getting at the heart of this issue about, you know, what was driving Creighton to, to take, um, take this step? And what was it about the situation that made you say, I want this role? I mean, I would say coming in uh, to this role, I, I can... I could make some guesses and make some observations as to what I thought was their motivation. Uh, I could talk a little bit more about what I've seen since I've been there. But I, I would say coming into this role, I think that it seemed like not only from the top down, but from the bottom up, there was a certain thirst for some consistency in messaging when it came to diversity and inclusion, there seemed to be a thirst when I would meet with students, faculty, other VPs, the president, the provost, there was a certain thirst for some vision when it came to this, that Creighton University was well known for the Catholic Jesuit mission. And it's pretty obvious that being committed and really being, you know, putting putting some skin in the game when it comes to diversity and inclusion is an extension of that mission. And there certainly had been good work being done across the university in various spaces when it came to diversity and inclusion, but there hadn't been a a voice in senior leadership. And that was the case that you see in a lot of institutions, be them, like I said, colleges and universities or other organizations. There have been people in recent years or recent decades who have started to lean into being committed to diversity and inclusion, but it's within the space of specific units within the university or specific uh, interest areas, as opposed to having that broad scope. Yeah, let's go. Uh, yeah, yeah. We came a long way. That's what the song said. And I could do all things. I could do all things, yeah, I could do all things, yeah, yeah, we came a long way, that's what the songs say, and I can do all things, I can do all things, I can do all things, yeah, yeah, I'm not afraid of the moment, I'm not afraid, I can't hold it, I gotta show them, gotta get up in the morning, I gotta do it for Kobe, lately I'm zoning, lately I know where I'm going, taking whatever controllers, show me opponents, show me opponents, I got a gift and I'm starting to own it, yeah, yeah, we came a long way, and that's what the songs 
say, and I can do all things, I can do all things, yeah, I can do all things, yeah, yeah, we came a long way, and that's what the songs say, and I can do all things, and I can do all things, and I can do all things, yeah, yeah, we came a long way, and that's what the songs say, and I can do all things, I can do all things, I can do all things, yeah, yeah, we came a long way, and that's what the songs say, and I can do all things, I can do all things, I can do all things, yeah. I am curious about how you yourself and maybe the diversity and inclusion and equity field at large is rethinking its philosophical underpinnings for the work that it does, um, but also maybe in more real practical terms, rethinking how it goes about diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. given lessons to be learned right now from the COVID-19 pandemic? Interestingly enough, I'm a member of the National Association of Diversity Officers in Higher Education. And with the, uh, with, and we call it NATOHE. And NATOHE had uh, the standards of professional practices that have been around for a number of years. And when those uh, standards of professional practice were originally uh, enacted, they really came out to be a lot of tasks, a lot of skills, a lot of tasks that diversity officers in higher ed really should have, that they should possess. And you saw uh, a number of institutions kind of take those, instead of taking them for what they were as a framework for the profession, as a framework to help develop people to use it, you saw some institutions just say, well, we'll take those, that list and, and say, well, you need to answer these as questions and then you can have the job. So it played out well in some spaces and other spaces, people kind of took it and they ran with it in a way that the very well-intentioned, very intelligent, you know, very um, thoughtful folks and colleagues who put it together that they hadn't fully intended. So over the last couple of years, the organization has been working to revise those standards. And now very recently uh, they came out with some revisions of those standards and it wasn't that they you know, that anybody was disrespecting the previous standards is just that the profession has evolved and the approach has evolved because they saw the reaction that they got from the standards. So now when you look at the new version of the standards, it's very much uh, a, a more pragmatic approach in terms of, you know, are, if you're going to be that diversity officer, are you going to be that voice in the room, like I mentioned? Are you going to be that person who leans into the priorities of the organization, the priorities of the university, and really says, well, how might we, if we do better in diversity and inclusion, help uplift these priorities? And really look at it a little bit in in a more nuanced approach. Even though in a lot of our hearts and minds, we know that diversity and inclusion needs to be pursued because it's the right thing to do, because we love people and we want equity and we want justice, but the reality is that within any organization, be it in higher education, be it across any other sector, we really do, if we want to make progress in our specific slice of that field, we have to figure out the best ways in which our interest intersects with those bigger priorities of the organization and really show how, if we're successful in diversity and inclusion, we make for a more stable, a more successful, a more adaptable organization. Is there something right now, is there an example, given that we're in the pandemic, so it's not as if you can necessarily put everything that you're thinking about into practice now, but are you having some thoughts about 
what you've learned during this pandemic that you want to apply, uh, like a specific action or something right now you're thinking, this is, this is a lesson I've learned out of the pandemic. It's definitely something I want to try out at Creighton or maybe in the broader community here. I would say that we've started, you know, both at Creighton as well as uh, colleagues of mine at other institutions, we've started to be forced to learn more about the people who we work with or who work for us as people because their, their home circumstances has led to influencing the way in which they may do their job in ways that really before they may have had those things going on, but there was no real reason for leaders to ask and there was no real reason for the people who work for those leaders to volunteer that information. But now it's of utmost importance that we know well, who has a baby at home, who has a parent they're taking care of, who has a spouse who is currently unemployed, who has a problem with internet access, who as either a student or a fellow coworker has access to a work computer or their own personal computer. I mean, there's so many different levels to understanding the lives that each of us live. And it's not to be intrusive, but it's really to be a little bit more involved, a little bit more interested. And I think if we take lessons from this, we can be better coworkers, we can be better uh, leaders, and we can have stronger organizations because we'll see the investment that we have in individuals. At the same time, I think when we look at the broader context, some of the conversations that I've had to bring to the table and it's been very well received, uh, particularly when I'm in spaces with other leaders within my organization, is that you hear news reports, let's say, about disparities really being played up, uh, that the COVID-19 crisis has really put on display um, racial disparities that have always been in place, but they're playing out now in deaths, in you know instantaneous deaths. And even if you're in a space where you have a wide diversity of people who work for you, and let's say the vast majority of the people are highly educated professionals, the fact is, is that let's say if the black community is being hit harder by COVID-19, even if that particular employee isn't being hit, they may have a friend, a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, somebody who is being hit due to the fact that they have membership and interest in that community. I've had conversations with colleagues where I talk about looking in my social media feed and, and conversations with family where I'm hearing about funerals and grandparents and all of these things on a very regular basis. And then I may have a white colleague who obviously they have a lot of empathy, but they just haven't seen those types of numbers. And this is a very non-scientific study, but the broader numbers would back this up that you're having some people within workforces due to their membership to a broader group that may be impacted. And in many cases, we can't see it when we talk about just, you know, day-to-day -day institutional racism, when we talk about a lifetime of microaggressions adding up. It's hard for people to really conceptualize that. But when we talk about actual death numbers and, you know, hospitalization numbers and, you know, people coming out of COVID-19 with new disabilities they didn't have before they had it and having it at higher rates within certain communities, that is basically an illustration of some of the other things that we couldn't see or we couldn't understand before. 
I've seen you refer before to looking at diversity and inclusion through a lens of justice and solidarity. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering if maybe part of the lessons that we're learning, what is being revealed more starkly because of the pandemic, if maybe the time there is a justification, a rationale to pivot the language that we use and talk about diversity and inclusion as justice and solidarity. I try, and I, th- I think I'm in a space, uh, one of the reasons that I pursued, uh, or I guess it was kind of a, a mutual pursuit between Creighton and myself uh, to, to get me into this position, to get me to Creighton, is the fact that it was it is a Catholic Jesuit institution, and there certainly is uh, open conversation on justice issues. There's open conversation on Catholic social teachings. And that allows me some space that I may not have if I was at a different institution where I can talk about the fact that I'm leading this diversity and inclusion work. I'm leading it, as you said, as work of justice, that we really need to consider solidarity. And sometimes that language doesn't always translate depending on the type of organization uh, in which one might find themselves. So when we're talking about diversity and inclusion work as justice work, It really is because we're looking for cultural change. We're looking for structural change. We're looking to be proactive. We're looking to say, well, where where are our disparities? Why are our diversity numbers not the way that we want them? Was that an issue of inclusion? All right, so let's start with inclusion. And if we're going to be more inclusive, that usually means we're going to try to be more just. And if we're going to try to be more just, it's hard to avoid solidarity. Because now if I'm justice-minded and I see that there are disparities out there, I see that there are injustices out there, then I'm called to stand with people. I'm called to say, well, what can I do within my organization to make things more just? How can my organization as a whole help to make things more just beyond the organization? And that really amounts to solidarity, that we're moving beyond an idea of charity. Hey, you know, I'm going to go tutor for a few minutes and that will be it. Not to say that we don't do something like that, but we have a different mindset when we engage in that tutoring. We have a different mindset when we actually engage in outreach to communities, when we have the various offices across the university that are really looking to build lasting and meaningful relationships with community that we're able to back that up with a conversation that goes across the university on racial justice, on, you know, we, I'm just talking with some folks about a, a reading group on uh, Ibram Kendi's uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist, like having those types of conversations on top of the work that's already been done and really rolling that all into that diversity and inclusion framework. I think that that makes for some powerful change. It may not be instant, But over the course of time, you start to see a positive shift in the culture as well as just the heart of the people involved with the organization. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break.
I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. My guest today is Dr. Christopher Witt, Creighton University's inaugural Vice Provost for Institutional Diversity and Inclusion. You're touching now on some issues that I think really speak to, um, certainly to our local community culture, but culture at large. And now I think maybe we're moving from the easier conversations which come under the guise perhaps of diversity and inclusion, but into the the meat of the subject in some ways, which, which is around these tougher issues to do with bias and bigotry and systemic isms of some sort, whether it's sexism, ageism, ableism, racism, or otherwise. What is it that you feel you're able to do, given that it's just you and a, and a, and a small team? How do you think you're able to tackle some of the root causes as opposed to mitigating just some of the symptoms? One of the, the good things about the structure that we have at Creighton University is that we do have an office of equity and inclusion, and that is actually a separate office from my office. And within that office, that's where you would have, uh, let's say civil rights complaints, Title IX violation complaints, other things along those lines where you're really looking, I guess you could say the carrot and the stick, they would end up being a little bit more of the stick, the investigation, the enforcement, all of those things. And there's a group of great people who work there And we're able to, and many times we can complement one another uh, in the work that we do. Sometimes we can work in tandem. We can kind of play off of each other, but it is separated. And at lots of institutions, you do have some sort of separation between the work. It's not to say that every institution has that. Some kind of roll it all into one space. But I think one of the things that, that once again, makes Creighton uh, uh, appealing to me and really helps us move the work forward is that we do have a bit of that separation. So I'm allowed uh, within the space that I have, like I said, to be a little bit more of that carrot, to say, how can we make your department stronger? How can we make your unit stronger? How can we be stronger as a university? Let's examine our structures. Let's uh, partake in some professional development. Let's figure out ways in which we can go about the hiring practices for the next few years How are we going to build networks and pipelines and relationships that may lead to a little bit more diversity in that pipeline or in those pools of candidates? How might I work with a department as to how they're going to work a little bit better with their students of a wide variety of backgrounds or incorporate uh, diversity and inclusion mindsets as well as approaches into curricular design, classroom management, things of that nature? So not having the other side of it where I'm the enforcer, where I'm coming in and everybody scatters when I show up because am I doing an investigation or whatever else, that allows me to have a little bit more um, 
I guess, buy-in uh, from colleagues across the institution, where a lot of times you start with the people who are on the cusp of buying in, the people who are already doing the work, and then you're able to move through the successes with those folks to some people who may be a little bit more skeptical. But that's the space that I'm in. And like I said, I can't speak for uh, colleagues at every institution because each institution kind of shapes these things a little bit differently. But I am appreciative of the fact that we have that structure in place where I am currently. You said something earlier about this. Um, the responsibility has to be collective and that diversity and inclusion in many ways, it's just the right thing to do. That's not a universal sentiment. And um, I mean, I understand that um, one of our state senators, uh, Nebraska State Senator Mike Grone, who's the um, chair of the legislature's education committee, uh, he was quoted in response to the Nebraska university system, looking to appoint people in similar roles that you occupy as being a, a waste of tax dollars. I find that a somewhat shocking assertion, given the context, and yet it, he clearly is representing, I think, a mindset and an attitude that, that exists as well. I wonder how, one, what your reaction to that kind of pushback is, but secondly, you've, you've had a couple of years now, and I'm, I'm wondering how you have seen, perhaps, um, any of those sentiments shift over time. Well, I would say that when you have someone who takes a look at the work of diversity and inclusion in any sector, and they say it's either a waste of time or money at the root of that comment, it could be a, a few different things, but usually they don't want to, or they just don't recognize that there are issues at play, that there are challenges at play, that there are many people who may be different than them who don't feel included. There are many people who feel marginalized, they feel excluded, they may even feel or actually be oppressed. And when there's, I guess, a denial of the fact that there are people out there that really feel that way, then I think it's an easy leap to say, well, why would we do anything about that? Uh, it, it's something like if I was having a conversation with someone who was in denial of, you know, climate change or in denial of anything related to that, then how could the conversation move on to fuel efficiency or, you know, uh, various green policies? So th there ends up being that disconnect there. Now, the numbers, the data, all of the, the hard facts show that there are those disconnects, that you do have, you know, lack of representation, that you do have uh, various historical factors that really do lead to certain groups of people being marginalized. And, and then also, you have facts that if an organization doesn't proactively engage in being inclusive and really being mindful about these things and trying to push forward with change, that they miss out on a lot of talent. And it's not just that they miss out on talent uh, in terms of students, faculty, staff, and administrators of color or from underrepresented groups, but in many cases, they miss out on talent of people who are in the majority who may seek to be in a space where they can interact with lots of different people. And it really doesn't behoove any organization to allow that type of exclusion to persist. It really doesn't make sense if somebody says, well, hey, if you become proactive, if you hire some experts and you have 
some people who can work collectively across your organization uh, to help you to be more inclusive, to help you to be more of a desired destination for a wide variety of people to really be adaptable as we start to see uh, our population shift, as we start to see our globe become more and more connected. And you say, well, no, I don't want to do any of those things. Then are, do you really have um, the interest of whatever organization it might be at heart in terms of do, it, do you have the growth, the stability of the organization first in mind, or is it what's first in mind is just a certain personal comfort, that this is the way things have been. I've been able to flourish. I don't want things to change because then I may have to face new challenges. I may have to deal with new people. Uh, I may end up not having things be exactly the way I can expect them to be. So that's where I think some of that mindset may come from. I have seen uh, people slowly but surely in the time that I've been here, some people who may have been, I guess, more naysayers to the idea of diversity and inclusion, or they just weren't as engaged. I've started to have those emails, those calls. Hey, you know, I, I saw what happened with this department. You know, can we do some of that here? Or how might we engage in this space, or I like what you said, or what somebody else said about this, that, or the other. So it's a process. It's a process of, of getting people on board, and you're not always going to get everybody on board. And also, just like would be the case in any, I guess, any field, there are also going to be some people that just don't work together. But overall, I feel like I'm doing my job where I can look back every six months, every year and say, well, how many more people are on board? How many more partnerships and collaborations do I have? How many more people do I have that are, who are saying, hey, we're, we're really making progress? Now, the progress is probably not enough for a whole lot of people. Uh, there are probably a lot of folks who say, hey, we could do more, but that's always the case. It doesn't matter how much you accomplish, there's always going to be people who could say more. And a lot of times, the main critic in that way will be myself. You know, I'm always judging myself. Oh, I wish I could have done this. I wish I could have done that. When I was in the classroom for many, many years, I would always, I would inevitably refer to the end of Schindler's List, my favorite movie. When Oscar Schindler's like, this watch, this ring, this car, I could have done more, I could have done more. And I would always tell students that you're going to have that Oscar Schindler moment. But if you can really then pause, stop, take a breath, and look back at all that you did and really start to appreciate it, usually you can move forward. So I have to catch myself sometimes because I do have those moments a lot of time because I, I want to do it all. But you know, you have a certain level of limited bandwidth, time, everything else.
why don't we segue quickly then into me asking you what has been your best failure i would say huh, my best failure would be when i was uh i was transitioning into to really considering going fully into diversity and inclusion leadership uh, i spent my career as a faculty member and it was kind of a, a a dual career i was also basically responsible for diversity and inclusion work while going through the tenure promotion process and all of that. But I had a lot of colleagues who were like, hey, you know, maybe you could do this at a, a senior level. You're moving into higher ed leadership. And early on, I ended up uh, getting contacted by uh, a university that was doing a search for a chief diversity officer. And they said, hey, your name came up and we got your information and we know you haven't put your um, application in, but we're reviewing applications today. Would you be able to whip something up and get it to us and interview this evening? And I was, I, I said, whoa, uh, I guess so. And this is before I really had taken the dive into fully applying, you know, to, to, to get a job everywhere. So I did what I had to do, went through the initial process, went through the entire interview process. And, uh, you know, I actually got the job, you know, not thinking that, you know, it was, the time, you know, necessarily that I was going to be able to go through, but I got the job. And as soon as I went about, you know, kind of negotiating final uh, details, the ground started shifting. They started saying, well, maybe we'll do this instead, and maybe we'll do that. And at the time, my wife was uh, pregnant with our first child, and I started to make the decision that I, I think I should do this. You know, this was going to be an upgrade in salary, responsibility, all of those things, but I had to make the decision to pass on that. And, and at the time, it really felt like a failure because it felt like, well, I've gone through this interview process. You know, I've, I've basically told my colleagues, hey, I'm about to be out of here. It's been great working with you all. And now I have to, because this doesn't feel right, I have to turn this down and come back as a failure. Wait, I thought you had a job. What happened with this job? And uh, I did that. You know, I ended up making that decision. And I mean, I don't know if we classify that as a, a full on failure, but it felt like a failure in the moment because, you know, I felt like I hadn't done some kind of due diligence, but I just knew something wasn't right. And um, it was it was about a, a little less than a year, um, maybe about 11 months until I got the job at uh, Creighton. And, you know, then it was that was an interesting circumstance because in the in the interim, I've been, you know, you have kind of a dry spell where there aren't positions. And then you're like, well, did I mess up? You know, are they, am I just going to be doing what I'm doing forever, which wasn't a bad thing. But now I kind of gotten a taste. I wanted to do this. And then I was a finalist for a couple of bigger positions. And then this came through. And that was I was kind of to the point where, um, you know, I was like, all right, this has been a while. Let me see. And, and as that's coming through. I ended up having this opportunity, and this opportunity was so much more right than the opportunity I turned down the year before. And uh, I mean, I'm a Catholic, you know, I have, you know, I, I actually had a few people who knew folks in Omaha. It was just a lot of different pieces that came together. And it was one of those moments where I had that failure, but then I was able to hold it together and really get to something that was so much better. I mean, I'm in a better position at a better institution in a better city than all those things than I would have been. So I guess that taught me a lesson of, of being able to kind of sometimes even self-impose failure because something may be better later. My quick follow-up, 
given how hard it is to um, uh, how hard it is to measure progress with diversity, equity, and inclusion, but also uh, your Schindler's List comment that you can never be satisfied. There's always more work to do. Yeah. So I was thinking about you know so so what does make you feel at least some pride or satisfaction in the success you're achieving? I mean, I, I have a number of things, but if I was kind of pinned down to choose one, it's one that's in progress. In the fall, we're going to have our first class of Union Pacific Diversity Scholars at uh, Creighton University. And this is, this is really a, a one-of-a-kind endeavor. Um, there are various programs across the country where, let's say, uh, a bigger corporation or a big employer may give money for scholarships. There are programs where maybe there's a small scholarship and a summer program. There are programs where there's simply an internship program. But they're really, you know, to all of our knowledge and my colleagues across the country have been, you know, backing me up on this because they're like, oh, we want to see how this goes because we haven't seen it happen. There, there really hasn't been a real partnership between a specific university and a specific major employer that provides for a four-year experience for students. And this was something that was really a lot of the beginnings of this were things that I was thinking about before I even got to Creighton. And then once I got to Creighton and I was able to work with some great colleagues, both on the Creighton side as well as on the uh, Union Pacific side, then some of the inklings of ideas combined with ideas they had. And we were able to really put together something where we're going to have students who come in and they get a significant scholarship each year, but they also get mentors at Union Pacific. They get professional development on the Creighton side. And all of it is to supplement their Creighton education. So they're going to learn about the inner workings of diversity and inclusion in a big corporate structure like Union Pacific. They're also going to learn about the inner workings of diversity and inclusion from me, the senior diversity officer at a university, at Creighton University. So when they're finished with this, they'll have lots of experiences with mentors, you know, uh, various usual professional development and things of that nature. But we hope that these cohorts, as they come out, that they're not only at the top of the heap, you know, educationally, but professionally, they are really ready to have a keen eye for when things are going well or not going so well in diversity and inclusion, as well as having that development over those years where they can step into being a voice for diversity and inclusion in ways that many times they will be asked anyway because they're a person of color, but they may not have that training. So we're really looking uh, to produce the next generation of leaders in diversity and inclusion uh, through this program. And we hope that it serves as a model for other types of programs that we can implement and even export ideas to colleagues at other institutions. But I would say the fact that it's happening, you know, it was an idea for the longest, but, you know, we're only a few months away from it beginning. And uh, we're working in great partnership with our friends and colleagues at Union Pacific and across Creighton. I'm really looking forward to this continuing, but it's really happening. So that's a, it feels like a good accomplishment.
I just wanted to speak a little bit to you, the person. So I wanted to ask a little bit about what was your childhood like and what shaped you to, to become this person? Um, well, I would say, you know, with my childhood, a, a big part of what shaped me, particularly in seeing the bulk, if not all of my professional career play out in the Midwest, looking back on it, is growing up in Baltimore really did shape me. And it molded me in a way that I can really excel in this space. Um, in some cases, it, it, it instilled a little bit of aggressiveness in me. In other cases, it really instilled a certain sense of justice and a certain sense of pride in who I am. Growing up in Baltimore, you know, majority Black area, when I was a kid, anything that I wanted to be, my mom could probably point out a Black person who was doing that. As opposed, and many black people who were doing that. I mean, as opposed to in certain places, you know, it's very few and far between just because of the population. So that was big, and just the history of the place and all that. It really did a lot for me that I didn't really realize it had done for me until I was well into adulthood. And I start to, people like, well, why are you doing that? Or why are you doing this? And then I start to think back, oh, it, it comes from being in Baltimore. And I think also, you know, growing up, you know, my parents split when I was pretty early, I mean, or pretty early in life when I was pretty young. And my mom taught in um, an affluent majority white suburb. And she wanted me to go to school close to her. She was a teacher. She had that option, even though our neighborhood was in another part of the metro area. Uh, so I grew up in a majority black neighborhood, but I went to school in very much majority white um, circumstances. And I was able to see differences. I was able to see differences in the experiences my friends had at their schools versus the schools I was at. I was able to see differences in the way that I may be treated. I was able to really engage in some hardcore code switching when I would go from, you know, my home neighborhood to school. So I think all of those things really set a groundwork. And on top of that, I've always been into politics. So, you know, power structures, power dynamics. So it all played into building me into who I am today. So you hosted a public radio podcast on WVIK in the Quad Cities called Margins. Mm -hmm. And it featured conversations with change agents uh, from around that area and the country. And your discussions focused on groups of people who are marginalized politically and socially and the people working to provide change for those communities. And I just am wondering, did you enjoy it? And what did you learn from the podcasting experience? Yeah, I mean, I love doing it. And it's something that that I've been in talks about reviving here uh, in some shape, form, or fashion. But, you know, the, the rigors of the actual job, you know, at Creighton really getting this office off the ground and engaging with the broader community and all of those things have taken the time away for it. But hopefully the time will come that I can get back involved. But I really like doing margins because I was able to have deep conversations with people who, in many cases, they were doing lots of work and they may get a quick moment in the newspaper. They may get a five second clip in the nightly news, but the broader community really wasn't finding out what was going on in their head. Uh, and in addition to those local leaders, like you said, I had conversations with people from across the country also. Uh, I remember having a great conversation uh, with Maria Inahosa from uh, Futuro Media Group. And, you know, a lot of people may see her on MSNBC and everything, but we went into doing the podcast and come to find out we were, we were really good friends with the same person where she's telling me about 
well, yeah, I was with a friend and I was in town, but I told him I had to go do this interview uh, with this guy, Dr. Witt, and they knew you. And I'm like, oh, yeah, your friend from way back in the day is a friend of mine. He was at my wedding. And I mean, so people are hearing all of this in the podcast where we're not only talking about, um, you know, these bigger issues of structural injustice. We have those moments to be people. We have those moments to really talk about connections that we may have or how small the world might be for people, particularly people of color who are engaged in this type of work, where we may not know that we really are in the same circles, but then when we get in the same space, we have way more connections than we thought. And I mean, that was something that I, I just love the product that came out of it. And I just love having those conversations. And like I said, in many cases, I had people who were colleagues and friends. And then I had some people I didn't know as much. And then they became closer to friends as we did it. So it'll be something I'd love to do again, um, you know, once time would permit. I've been in conversation today with Dr. Christopher Whip, Creighton University's inaugural Vice Provost for Institutional Diversity and Inclusion. Chris, it's been a real pleasure and a privilege to chat with you. Thank you for joining me on Zoom. Yeah, thank you so much. And I'm glad that we were able to have this conversation and I look forward to conversations in the future. Take care. New technology. Okay. Is it doing anything now? No. Yeah, I didn't really do anything. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's the end of this week's show. Our sound engineers are Mark McGaw and Dalimar McTizik. I'm your host and producer, Stuart Chittenden. Live's radio show is an executive production of Squish Talks. Find links to podcasts of this and previous shows via our Instagram and Facebook profiles at Live's Radio Show. Join me next week for more conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. Squish Talks.